wonderful, wonderful truths. We're going to pray in the name of the one who is worthy. I just want to invite you to join me now. Father, we praise you this morning. You are the God who is outside of creation, and yet you are the one who has created all things. You've sent your Son, who condescended, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Father, we praise you according to your mighty deeds, to your wondrous works, to your excellent greatness. You are all-powerful, you are all-knowing, you are holiness and righteousness, majesty and beauty. You've hung the stars in the sky, you've set earth in rhythm, a rhythm that sings out in harmony day after day, night after night. They declare your glory together, and Father, we aim to continue with them this morning, making much of you. Father, we have sinned against you. We've sinned against our children, we've sinned against our spouses, we've sinned against our neighbors, we've sinned against ourselves, but Father, most significantly, again, we have sinned against you, we've done evil in your sight, none of us are blameless. We call out to the God who created the skies and hung all things in space just where they are, we call out to you, call out in the name of Jesus that you forgive us of our sins. Father, we ask this morning that our sin that is so obvious to you, that it would become so much more obvious to us. Father, we ask that you would search our hearts this morning, that you would know us and that you would see if there's any wicked way in us. Father, we pray that you, in the quietness of our hearts, that you'd reveal our sin to us so that we could bring it to you, the God who created us and the God that forgives us now by the blood of Christ. Father, cause our sin to ever be before us. And so Christ cares for it. Father, not for the sake of our shame and guilt, but for the sake of Jesus' name, we pray these things. Father, you have made known to us your mercy. You've promised to your church your steadfast love. Father, again, as we mentioned a moment ago, by the blood of Jesus, we ask that you blot out our sins, that you wash us clean every part. Father, remind us this morning of that precious flow, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us white as snow. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, you've begun a work in these brothers and sisters that are gathering with me this morning, the work that you promised to complete. You promised when we ask for forgiveness that we would receive it, what joy that we experience this morning, that our shame is not needing to be covered. We can bring it to you. Our guilt cannot harm us. Our past cannot control us. We truly, in you, Jesus, are new creatures. Jesus, in you we are alive again to God. We thank you again for that. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus, that we bring so many requests. Father, there's so many needs that we have this morning that we bring to your attention. Needs that you know, but you've called us, you've, you've commanded us to bring our needs to you, and Father, we do that. You've commanded us to, to bear one another's burdens, and so, Father, we do that this morning. We continue to lift up our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Father, we pray for the believers there in Ukraine. We ask, Father, that you would cause them to be a steadfast light in the dark darkness of what is taking place there. Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself, that Jesus would be lifted up, and that those that are far from you, that the light would shine on those living in darkness as a result of this tragedy and terrible thing. 
Father, we pray for Ukrainians who have never heard the gospel. We, we pray that this would be an opportunity for them to experience the hope that we're celebrating this morning, the hope that is alone found in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary. Father, right now it's wrestling as to how it's to assist its students in this time of crisis, how it's to lead, how it's to continue to, to be used by the church there to equip the saints for ministry. Father, we pray that you'd give them wisdom. We pray that you'd give them fruit. And God, as we think of the Ukrainian brothers and sisters there, Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts to be broken, even though they are out of our sight. Father, may they not be out of our mind and surely not out of our prayers. Would we be a faithful church to bring them to you in this time of crisis? Father, we turn our eyes to our brothers and sisters whom we just sent back to the field, missionaries that have left this area, left even from our, our, our families, and have returned to their mission field. God, we pray for your protection and your guidance. God, as they work to figure out what you're calling them to do in this season of ministry there in, in their cities, respectively, Father, we pray that you'd give them wisdom, that you'd give them protection. God, that you'd give them mercies that are new every morning, that their manna that you lay out for them, that they would receive and be blessed and nurtured by. God, we ask that that would be true of our brothers and sisters around the world, but particularly the family that I'm thinking of this morning. God, we think of our own city. We thank you for the work that you're doing in the churches and the blessing that you're bringing to them as we open your word. But Father, we also pray that your blessing would be upon Mayor Keller and on the city council. Father, we pray that you would bring through their, through their administration a flourishing that affects all the citizens of Hagerstown. From the least of us to the greatest, Father, and especially the weakest, those unable to defend themselves. Father, may flourishing come to our citizens as a result of their work. And Father, may that come as they listen to your wisdom, as they repent of their own sin, and lead us by your ultimate leadership into health and safety and flourishing as a people. Father, we pray this selfishly even over our church. as We, by your providence, are stationed here, positioned in Hagerstown. We pray that your church would be strengthened and it also would flourish under their administration. God, we ask these things desperately. Father, we think of St. Mark's Lutheran Church just across the street. Father, we lift up Pastor Ron Schlack. Just as in this room, Father, may you ever be reforming their hearts through repentance and faith as your word is opened and declared. May that church be strengthened there across the street as Jesus is lifted high. May that give them a boldness to repent of sin, to walk in community one with the other, to receive instruction one from another. And Father, to speak truth and love. Jesus, we ask all these things in your name. You're the one who is worthy. We are not worthy, we pray in your name. You're the one who is making sinners worthy. You're the one who is making all things new. We ask all of things in the power of your resurrected life. Amen. I want to invite you to, to have a seat. You've already been welcomed this morning in the name of Jesus, and I want to give you a, a welcome in the name of Josh. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, at this time, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids, and today's a really exciting day, although it is a painful day for me. Uh, for many weeks, our children with bated breath have waited the day when they could exit this room, be rescued from the droning on. Well, maybe that's a little harsh. But go into Hubtown Kids. Gray Station. Today's the day, and so if you are in Gray Station, if your age is 6 to 11 and you've checked in already, you're welcome to, I want to invite you to come over to this side over here and uh, meet with uh, Brad and Tara. Brad and Tara are going to be talking this morning, of, they're going to be answering this question, what is our only hope in life 
and in death. Additionally, this morning, if you're in the blue station, you can go to my left, which would be your right, and you're going to be learning this morning about uh, the, the son of laughter. You're going to be learning this morning about the son of laughter with, with Miss Wendy, and, uh, and that's going to be a great time for you, I'm sure. And as they're, as they're exiting out of here, I just want to encourage you uh, parents, if you, if you want to, or just anybody here in the church, if you want to just be a, playing a part of helping our kids find and follow Jesus, which is the main job of parents, but we're called to assist in that as brothers and sisters. If you want to help with that, you can ask them this question. What is our only hope in life and in death? What is our only hope in life and in death? I've got, uh, Jay is raising his hand in the back. I'm assuming that he wants to answer the question. He just, he's got to end. I'm just kidding. He's turning the TV on. But uh, our only hope in life and death, here it is, that we are not our own, but belong to God. That we are not our own, but belong to God. So you catch a, catch a kid after the service, ask them and, and quiz them. You'll, uh, you'll be glad that you did. It'll be a joy. I want to encourage you to open your copy of God's Word up to Mark chapter 14. This morning, Mark chapter 14. Last week we saw uh, in the previous verses of, our, of, our, of this morning's text that Jesus took the Passover meal. He took that Passover meal and he changed it. He showed us that he himself was, in fact, the Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of everything that that sufferer was pointing forward towards. And so from that day forward, his followers, what were they to do? They were to partake of the supper regularly and to actually regard it as a reminder and a picture of Jesus' sacrifice for Jesus' church. That's what we're going to do today. Such a beautiful... Uh, Setting up that the Lord by his providence gave to us. That last week we, we could look at the changing of the meaning of the Passover. In a sense, the fulfillment of it in Christ. And we could actually participate in it this morning. I'm really looking forward to that. At some point during that meal, that night, as we looked at last week. Which again, I believe is Thursday night in the week of the Passion. It's the night that Jesus would, would be arrested. Be, to be crucified the next day on Good Friday. But at some point in that meal, Jesus declares that one of them, one of the twelve, not one of the greater group gathered in that large upper room, but one of the twelve, one of the inner circle would actually betray Jesus. Remember we talked about it, it was one of the people that's sitting so close to Jesus that the salsa bowl or the stewed fruit right in front of Jesus, it, they dipped in together. That's how close this guy was. After that announcement, there's some confusion. During that confusion, Judas gets up. One of the twelve again, he gets up, he exits the room, he rushes down the stairs on the outside of the building, and he disappears into the night. The meal finished up with a hymn. I argued that it was Psalm 118. It finished up with this hymn, and they all leave together for the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going together. We assume that on that, in that pathway... From the upper room inside of Jerusalem to outside of the city, on the way to Gethsemane, there on the east side, that this conversation would take place. The conversation that we're going to read, Mark 14, verses 26 to 31. Before we read it, let me just kind of frame it up. This is how I kind of think it's going. This is, this is how I kind of see it going down in my mind. Jesus speaking to his disciples, I'm going to die. Peter, I'll die with you, Jesus no, no, you won't. 
Peter, oh, yes, I will. Peter, you'll deny me. Jesus, I would never do that. Jesus, you'll do it tonight, actually. So will the rest of you. Peter, even if everyone else denies you, I would never do that. It's kind of what takes place in this passage, but let's not take my word for it. Let's actually jump into the text. So imagine as we read this, Jesus walking from the upper room, presumably past the temple, exiting out the eastern gate, heading down through the, valley, the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what takes place. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I would not, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, speaking of Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's ask God together to bless the reading of his word. Father, we are unable in ourselves, in and of ourselves, to understand what you would like for us to hear and see in your word this morning. We recognize that you've given us this scripture. You've given us this for our correction, for our encouragement, Father, that we would know more about you, that we would know more about ourselves. Father, even that we would know how to act in our sinful ways in accordance with your word. Father, we pray that that would be true. We pray in the name of Jesus. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come now and encourage us and do the work that he intends to do. Amen. I don't know if uh, you know this about me, but I used to be a cop. Well, not in real life. I'm, streaking, I'm speaking strictly of the world of my imagination when I was a child. Countless summer evenings in the late 80s and early 90s were spent look, locking up bad guys and saving the day. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you spent your early years doing the exact same thing. Good guys versus bad guys. Cops versus robbers. Generally, you have the perpetrators, right? That's the bad guy. You have the victim then, that's the, the damsel in distress. And you have the, the good guy, and that's the, that's the one who gallantly saves the day. It's the oldest trope in the book, right? The good guys versus the bad guys, the hero coming in and saving the day. And I, I don't know about you, but I never wanted to play the bad guy. Some of you are different, you wanted to play the bad guy. And I know who you are, I'm watching you. But I never wanted to play the bad guy. In fact, I, I would always hate it when maybe some older kids were there and they were a little bit bigger and they are like, no, I will play the good guy. You be the bad guy. Well, then I kind of wanted to play the bad guy just to get at the new good guy. But anyway, never wanted to, to do such a thing. I always wanted to play the good guy. I always wanted to think myself the hero. And I surely didn't want to be the damsel in distress. I didn't want to be the one that wasn't causing it, but was just this innocent bystander that was being attacked and just some pawn in this game that we would play in the side yard while we waited for mom to call us back in when the lights would go out. 
In the real world, though, it seems that you really are either the bad guy, the damsel in distress, or the hero. That's kind of the way that we look at most things. And if we are to use that as a, as a method of, of, of a philosophical method of viewing our world, I would ask you, who do you consider yourself to be this morning? As the story's being played out, are you the victim? Are you the bad guy? Are you the hero that's kind of, it's just episode one, it's the first installment of three movies, and so it kind of ends with you kind of losing, but don't worry, you'll come back, you'll win. Who are you? My main idea for us this morning comes from this, this isn't the main idea, but it kind of comes from this idea that in our fallen human condition, we would rather be the hero. We would rather see ourselves the hero. We intrinsically do just that. But the truth is that our sin and our weakness leaves us looking more like the damsel in distress, the one in need of rescuing, the one in league with the bad guy. And so the main idea, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. In our weakness, he is strong. When we are faithless, he is faithful. When we're in dire need of rescuing, he's the one that saves us. And when we've turned our backs on him, in our own weakness, in our own frailty, as Psalm 103 says, knowing we are but dust, he rescues us. That's the main idea this morning. Jesus is the hero. And I would offer to you this morning that because Jesus is the hero, we're able to respond in three very specific ways. We're able to respond and Three very specific ways. And so let's look at this text this morning, understanding that Jesus is the hero, not you. And from there, we'll come away from this conclusion. We'll come away with this conclusion, I believe, that we should walk in community. We should truly walk in community. And we can, because Jesus is the hero. And as we walk in community, things about ourselves will be revealed that we wish wouldn't be revealed. But that's okay. Because Jesus is the hero, not you. We don't have to keep up anything. He's done it all for us. He's made us worthy. And so we can walk in community. We can receive correction. And finally, we can speak the truth in love. All three of these. Because Jesus is the hero. And not you. And so John 13, 27, it tells us that Judas at some point in time leaves the upper room. He goes out into the cover of darkness. Sometime during the meal, he's out. Disciples sing a hymn, they go this way, Judas has gone that way all by himself. They are together walking in community. Judas isolated himself. It says he goes out into the darkness, he goes out into night. I think it's symbolic that that's exactly the way that Judas was living his life. In darkness. Nobody could truly see, aside from Christ, into his heart. He covered it up. He hid it. Perhaps it was shame. Perhaps it was guilt. Perhaps he was covering up pet sins. Maybe he was underestimating sin in his own life. I can handle this. I can take care of this. I can keep, uh, keep these pet sins. I can uh, stay, tow this line. He put up a front. And nobody was allowed in. Nobody could see into his life. I imagine this is how it's going down. The Pharisees are looking for a way to bring Jesus down. And they find that way, that chink in the armor. They find it in Judas. They needed a weak spot, and here they've got it. And what was it? It was Judas's love for money. It was his love for money. 
Maybe you're wondering this morning, why are we even talking about Judas? He's, he's not even listed in these verses, and that's exactly what I want to get at in this first point. Where was he? He's walking in darkness, walking all alone. He never brought his sin to Jesus. He never allowed his sin to be brought into light in the community of the saints. My mind thinks back to this image that was born from the mind of Tolkien, legend of the Lord of the Rings. In that world that he gave us through the, the series, The Lord of the Rings, we understand that there's this evil being by the name of Sauron, and, and he created several rings. And these rings were a form of temptation and control, and he passed those out to all the great leaders of all the different races. He passed them all out. They were rings of power, and they preyed on the weaknesses of all. And all of these rings, they were all controlled by one main ring. And that ring bore an inscription that chills me to the bone. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. This is exactly the game that Judas was playing. He had been enticed by sin. He had been given a ring to wear as it were. And now in the darkness he was being bound. In the cover of darkness bound by his own lust. There are those who are sympathizers with Judas and say, well, it's a difficult road to, to hoe, isn't it? Maybe you'd say this morning, did he always have this bent towards sin? Was he, was he always against Jesus? Was he a sleeper the entire time? I don't believe so. I think that Judas truly believed that he could handle his sin on his own. I believe that Judas really had the love of money get the best of him. Instead of walking openly in the light, walking in community, allowing Jesus' righteousness to save him and not his own righteousness, not his own desires to lead him, he went the other way. There's a warning for us here this morning in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. As we consider Judas and his life, Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And here's another warning here, an aside. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's several points that we could draw out of that, that short verse, Galatians 6, 1. But the one I want to highlight for you at this point in our time this morning is this. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I imagine it was a slow fade as James chapter 1 points out. Lust, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That transition, that transition of inertia, it's this picture of slow and gradual growth which finalizes itself in death and not life. Desire or lust giving way to sin, sin giving way to death. As you consider the life of Judas, it would be helpful for us to ask ourselves, what would cause a man like Judas to cover up his sin? Truly think with me. 
What would cause him to cover up his sin? Perhaps it was shame. Shame. Maybe he thought, nobody will really understand. Everybody thinks better of me than this. This is not a safe place to convey the temptation that I'm facing or the sins that I've even committed as of late. Remember, it's a slow fade. Perhaps at this point it was too late. Shame kept him in darkness. I think that's reasonable. Maybe it wasn't shame. Maybe it was its, its, its cousin, guilt. Why? Because, because you're, he's not just a victim of temptation, but he's actually enjoying temptation. And maybe that's your story this morning. Maybe you have shame. People think better of you than this. They would never expect it from you. And so if you reveal the temptation and your own weaknesses, maybe they will think shameful thoughts about you. Maybe they'll reject you. Or maybe it's guilt again. Why? Because you're not just a victim, but you're actually partaking and enjoying whatever sin that Satan has tempted you away with. I think both of those are reasonable, and perhaps there's others, but for sake of time, we'll move on. I would say, though, Judas truly didn't walk in community. Why? Because of shame and guilt. And I think that's true of us. The temptation is there for us when we are overtaken with a, with a fall, when we are overcome with sin. Because of shame and guilt, we would hide our secret sins. We would hide the deep thoughts that we have, entertaining them, embarrassed by them, bound by shame and guilt. Shame and guilt that ultimately would lead toward death. Perhaps Judas is thinking, I can't let other people think of me that perhaps I am actually the bad guy. His own pride, his own self-confidence getting in the way. That's you here this morning, and I think in some sense, it's all of us here this morning. Let me offer you this, that because Jesus is the hero, because he posits himself as the hero, and we as those who have either betrayed him or need to be rescued, or both, because of him being the hero, we are able to humbly respond by walking openly in community. Because it's not our works of righteousness that allows us to pray in the name of Jesus to gather in this building, to come to this table. It's not our worthiness. It's because of what Christ is doing in our own lives. It's because of what Christ is doing in this church. For the sake of imagination and illustration, I want to ask you, what would, it have, what would have happened in, in Judas's life had, had he truly been walking in the light? What would have happened? Perhaps inviting others to see the depths of his heart, even from the beginning. Perhaps things would have gone quite differently for him. At any rate, it's helpful for us to know we can walk in the light because Jesus is the hero. He overcomes our sin with his great love. Our sins, as we sang a moment ago, though they are many, his mercy is more. And so I invite you, Hagerstown Church, to live a life of openness to live a life of transparency, to live a life of genuine community, confessing sins one to another, making much of Jesus who is our hero. While Judas was living in isolation, in contrast, Peter was not. Peter's in this group as Jesus is talking to them. We know because he's the one arguing with Jesus. It's likely that, that Judas was naturally more of an introvert. 
Maybe some of you can identify with that. Peter, not so much an introvert. He's the opposite. You never had to wonder what was on Peter's mind. Why? Because it was always coming out of his mind. He was always speaking. Have you ever met anybody like that? Don't answer that. But Peter, he was open. He was honest. And for better or for worse, he was genuine. And so here's Peter. He's in community. But the fact of the matter is, he's not listening. He's not listening. Look at verse 27. In your copy of, of God's word, it, it, it says that Jesus said. Okay? Then look at verse 29. It also says then that Peter said. Then in verse 30, again, it says, Jesus said, and then in verse 31, it says, speaking of Peter, Peter said, or he said. What am I trying to bring out here? Well, you, you can't see it in the English translation that you're looking at it, but behind the scenes, hidden in the Greek, is, is this. In verse 27, when it says that Jesus said, that's the present active indicative, and here's what that means. Jesus says it one time, and he's indicating something in that moment. He's saying, you will deny me. You'll forsake me. You'll fall away. Says it one time. But what's interesting is that in verse 29, it's also in the active indicative, Peter making a statement. He's indicating a fact, or at least he thinks it's a fact. He's saying something, but it's in the imperfect tense. And what that means is this. He doesn't stop saying it. It means he keeps saying it. Jesus says, you'll deny me. Peter's like, no, I won't, no, I won't, no, I won't. I don't think I will. I'm not going to. I won't, I won't. We won't. They may. I won't. Verse 30 backs it up again. Jesus says, no. He says his thing. Present, active, indicative. He just makes a statement. What happens in verse 31? Again, imperfect, active, indicative. What's Peter saying? He continues to say, and so it sounds kind of like this. Jesus said, Peter was saying. Jesus said, Peter kept saying. Jesus would make a statement. Peter would repeat himself. He would continue and continue to argue. I remember when I spent a, a, I spent a long stint in Tennessee. Perhaps you can hear that in my, in my, uh, my speech here. But, but I remember hearing this statement for the first time. He couldn't get a word in edgewise. You ever heard that statement before? Couldn't get a word in edgewise. Well, Jesus, of course, could definitely get a word in edgewise. But that's true of Peter. He was talking so much, saying so little, and not listening. And so here my second observation is just as we consider the life of Peter is, number two, receive correction. Receive correction. The thing that we'll be building up to and quickly and, 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 and this second point is this. Because Jesus is the hero, we can receive correction. We can be corrected. We can be proven wrong. We can forget to turn our mics on. We can do a lot of things and be forgiven. Why? Because we are but dust. Jesus is the hero. But Peter's too proud to understand that at this point in time. Peter couldn't believe the words of Jesus. I would never do something like that. Never. And I truly believe Peter's not saving face. He's not like, oh man, I've seen that in my heart. But I really, I just don't want anybody to know it. I really think Peter's like, I would never do that. Never. We're going to look at it in just a minute. Not a minute, I should be more honest than that. We're going to look at it in a couple of weeks. And it might take a lot of minutes. But Peter, I really believe when he, when he even hears, hey, right before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me thrice. I, I really feel like Peter's like, not going to happen. Not going to happen. 
I, I even think after maybe he denied Jesus the first time, he's like, whoa, I can't believe that happened, but Jesus did say three. I can hold out. I'll make it the next two. It's not going to happen. Boom, it happens again. He's really convinced in his own mind and soul that he's not going to be able to do this. He would never deny Jesus. And by the way, there's a principle here. When we see a rivalry of what the Word of God says about you and what you think about you, we have to side one way, don't we? And we should always side with what the Word of God says about us. You may say, well, I would never do that, Jesus. I would never deny you. What does the Word of God say about you? I would never sin in that way. I read the newspaper this week and saw all these terrible things that all these terrible people are doing in this terrible city. I would never do anything like that. God, have mercy on your soul. The word of God says that we are depraved, every last one of us. And that apart from the work of the Spirit of God in our souls and lives, that we too would turn our backs on Jesus given the chance. That's what the word of God says. A sweet junior would never do such a thing. Well, there's what you think and there's what God says. I can't help but think of Peter maybe being a little frustrated with Jesus' prediction, especially on the heels of what he anticipates Judas is doing at this very moment. Maybe, you, maybe you've felt in a similar way. Peter hears this prediction. He's incensed that somebody would do such a thing against Jesus. How could they, how could they do something so terrible and again, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. I hope you write that down. Go back and take a look at it this week. Spend some time meditating on it. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, attempting to, to restore him gently, humbly. Second part of that again, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Speaking of Jesus, there is no temptation that has taken you that is not common to man, but he's withstood the test. The trouble is the temptations that are common to man are common to you, regardless of your age or gender. So we, with humility, look upon our brothers and sisters, those who have fallen away. We, we attempt to restore them with gentleness and humility. Why? Because that very same thing could happen to us. I wonder if that's exactly what's happening to Peter. <laughs> Typical. Judas. I'm not surprised. Well, I kind of am surprised, but I'm not really surprised. How could he do this? Jesus, you're all going to deny me before the night's over. I would never do that. Well, Galatians 6, 1 wasn't given to him yet, but we'll get to that point. Jesus clearly states his peace, and Peter clearly continues to argue with Jesus. There's a young man who had fallen into temptation and, and afterward he approached his older brother saying, I wish you were the type to warn a brother of pending doom. To which the older brother responded, well, I wish you were the type to listen. Which begs the question, are you easily corrected? Are you surprised when somebody in humility and gentleness attempts to correct you? It's interesting, as a church, we've been commanded to do such a thing. We've been commanded to not just receive correction, but to give it. Are you the type to receive correction? Are you okay with your dirty laundry, in a sense, being brought out into the light in front of some others, at least a few to see? Are you surprised? Do you fight that? Do you reject it? Are you easily corrected? Are you surprised that others can even see your sin? 
Jesus would have us as we walk in community to receive correction one from the other. And yet Peter was not one, at least not at this point in time, was not one to be able to do such a thing. Let me ask you, are you walking in community this morning? And are you easily entreated, as the Bible says? Are you easy to be corrected? Maybe you say, well, I'm walking in community. Let me ask you this. Have you invited people in? Have you invited people into your life implicitly? Or is it more like, well, I'm sure that they know that they can speak to me and and point out my, my failures or my weaknesses. And I'm sure they know that they can. I'm not talking about that. I don't think that's what the scriptures want from us. Explicitly, not implicitly, have you given full access of your life to a brother and a sister? Brother or a sister. A couple brothers or a couple sisters. Can they ask you anything? Can they call you out at any time? By the way, that's exactly what church membership is. Church membership is us looking one to the other. It's a group of Christ followers who come together and invite each other to encourage, correct, and challenge one another on the basis of God's word. We do that regularly. We should be. Are you able to receive correction? Are you the type? Peter couldn't handle it. Truth is, it's just what he needed. He needed to hear correction. He needed to hear the truth. And we'll figure out that it's not just because Jesus wanted to show him his weaknesses. Jesus had another point in mind. He wanted him to see that he's the hero. And even in your failings and even in your your abandonment and denial of Jesus, that you would still be welcomed in because Jesus is the hero. Remember, who is... Who is Mark written to? The Gospel of Mark. Well, it's written to us, but the first audience would have been who? The Roman Christian. Experiencing what? Intense persecution. Many of them tempted to deny their Lord. Many of them tempted to to choose safety of of their own lives and safety of their family. They needed to know that Jesus was the hero, not them. That he was making them worthy, and they weren't worthy in and of themselves. When we are walking in community, when we see Jesus as the hero, we can receive correction. We can receive instruction. You can't let Jesus down. We were never holding him up. Oftentimes, the only thing being held up is our own idea of what we want to look like. And truly, it's a facade. So for those of you who turn from sin... And turn to Jesus, you can truly be pardoned. And nothing, listen, nothing can be said of you that if it were true, Jesus hasn't already paid for. Think of that. Or if I'm corrected publicly, if a brother or sister knows of my sin and weakness as I walk in open community, they'll know that I'm a failure. Remember, nothing, nothing for those who are in Christ sticks to them. Nothing. Romans 8 makes it incredibly clear. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. For those who are truly in Christ, we've been pardoned. And as we sing, Jesus paid it all. So here's where we really begin to see the clarity of of the title and the connection with this text. Intoxicating self-confidence. There's a liquor here in Hagerstown that is far more damaging than whatever can be sold on the street corner. And that is the liquor of self-confidence. It's intoxicating. It deceives us. 
It brings us into darkness. It stunts our growth. In the darkness, we're bound. We're bound by it. And so, Christian, you were added to the church that so you can walk through and in community together, grounded on the Word of God, that we would be able to help one another to begin to look more and more like the Son of God through the working of the Spirit of God out of the Word of God. What do we say here? Well, we say it often. It was mentioned in Sunday school. I was really excited to hear that. We're all in process. We're all in process. It's one of our statements we say around here. Each of us, from the oldest to the youngest. And by the way, it happened to me just one week ago. One of your pastors offered correction. Was, sorry, was offered correction and received it. Why? Because I'm not the hero. I'm not the hero. Jesus is the hero. I'm the bad guy. I'm the one in distress. I can receive correction because Jesus is the perfect one who is changing me. And I don't want to lie about the fact that I need him to be my hero and to change me. I do. And so I'm not saving you. You're not saving you. Jesus is saving you if, in fact, you are being saved. You can receive the scolding for sin gladly. Why? Because Jesus is your righteousness. You can receive correction. Why? Because God is using that to change you so that you'll look more like Jesus. He's using his word. He's using his saints. I want you to imagine this. What would it look like if the church truly rested in Jesus' righteousness? Just imagine with me. Start with your own life. Would your life look any different if you truly rested in Jesus' righteousness? If you truly saw yourself as the damsel in distress in league with the bad guy? If you saw Jesus as the great and merciful hero, what would change about you? Would you be more open about the things that you struggle with? Would you be more confrontational in a gentle way? Maybe that's the truth, I'm not sure. I think it's worth asking about perhaps in your life groups. Husbands, great question to ask your wives. Fathers, great, great, great question, I'm stuttering because I don't want to ask it. Great question to ask your children. What would I look like? Would my life look any different, son? Would my life look any different, wife? If Jesus truly was the hero in my life. You've heard it said before, though, that we have two ears and one mouth. That make a... That would make a great uh, sermon to preach, right? Although it's not in, found in the Bible. It is a good point. The idea is we should be listening twice as much as we talk. But as a way of transitioning, I want to offer to you, there is a time when we should talk. When we should speak. And so here we have point number three. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to speak the truth in love. That's what we see Jesus doing. I really want you to think about this last point. Jesus, you'll all abandon me, but I'll not abandon you. I'll meet you in Galilee. Think about that. Jesus tells his disciples, you'll all abandon me, every last one of you, but I'll not abandon you. I will die, but I'll rise again, and I'll meet you in Galilee. What a beautiful truth. We're going to work a little bit to unpack this. 
But here's what's happening. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's ahead. He's preparing them for the fact that they will desert him. He's already prepared. He knows that it's coming. He's just shared a meal with these guys who would desert him. He still tells them, I'm going to meet you in Galilee after I've raised from the dead. I'll meet you. I'll not abandon you. When you're faithless, I will be faithful. He needed them to know that he still loved them. He needed them to know that he knew. Imagine Jesus not having this conversation with his disciples. Them all denying him. And then after his resurrection, they're like, oh, we were supposed to meet him in Galilee right now. I'm not going. I can't, I can't face him. He doesn't know I've denied him. Jesus wanted them to know, no, I know what you'll do. And I'm still inviting you in. I know that you're broken. I know that you're weak. I know that you're still a sinner. And I'm inviting you in. It's a heavy thing that Jesus knew that he needed to share. He, need, he needed it to be, to be shared with them. He wanted them to hear that he loved them in spite of their failings. And so what did he do? He told them the truth and love. How many of you would uh, communicate in such a way as Jesus did? Let's just pretend that there you are sitting in the hot seat. You're sitting in Jesus' seat. He's just kind of like, hey, I want to put you in. I'm going to sit back here behind the curtain. We'll just see how you do if you were the Messiah. Let's just see. And he's like, uh, he gives you your cue. He gives you your card. And you look at this card and you say, oh, I'm supposed to say they're all, they're all going to desert me? How many of you, what would, what would the next thing that you would say? What would it be? What would it be kindness? What? You're all going to turn your back on me? That's how this plays out? You'll all run before the night's over? Peter, you'll deny me three times? Man, what I would do if I wasn't playing Jesus' role here, right? That's not how Jesus reacted. He spoke the truth to them, but he did it in love. How do you do when it comes to sharing the truth in love? How do you do? Often the truth can be painful. More often than pain, it can be un at least uncomfortable. But Jesus doesn't shrink back. He doesn't shy away from these uncomfortable conversations. And really, neither should we. Neither should we. I imagine the, the early Romans hearing this teaching as it's being read aloud. This account of Jesus' life, the Gospel of Mark. Imagine them thinking about this and imagining some ways that they could apply that. How they could emulate, emulate their own Savior. Well, one thing that they could probably imagine that we could also is that we could begin to tell people the truth. We could begin to tell people the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's painful. It's been said that one of the most painful truths, one of the most uncomfortable truths that we can share with somebody is the gospel, which is itself called the good news. The good news does have some painful bits in it. We could tell people the truth, though. But not only can we tell the people truth, not only can we engage our brother and sister with truthful talk, but we can engage them with truth in a way that is hopeful, in a way that leads to life, in a way that is seasoned with love and springing forth from humility. Let me ask you this morning, are you willing to speak the truth to others even when it's painful, even when it's awkward? Jesus didn't. He knew what needed to be done. As I think of our own church, I think that we are a church that has got truth down. I think we've kind of got that in a sense. We love truth. And yet so many of us, we struggle to truly love. Oftentimes the truth that we want to 
deal to folks is a truth that would push them away and not invite them in. And yet for the Christian, correction and truth is always an invitation in and never a rejection out. Now that doesn't mean that everyone will receive it. But the truth is always, the truth for a Christian, is always correction as an invitation in and never a rejection out. It's exactly what the gospel even means. Jesus willing to say the, the hard thing but the true thing and to say that with humility and with love. Let me ask you this. Do you remember who wrote this gospel? It's been a while since we've looked at it. The man that God used to write this gospel, his name was Mark. You might say, well, Mark was a disciple, was he not? No, he was not a disciple. He was not one of the twelve. So how did he know all these things? Well, of course, we know that holy men of God spoke and, and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We know that's true, but still yet, physically speaking, where was his source? Who was his source? Maybe you already know. Maybe it's becoming clear. Maybe you're being reminded even now. Mark's not one of the twelve. How could he possibly know all these things? It was through Peter himself. Peter's the one that discipled Mark. How did Peter know all, or Mark know all of these details? Because Peter told him. I think it's interesting that all the other gospels that mention this rooster crowing and three denials, it's actually Mark that says it was two rooster crows and three denials. It's a little tiny detail. If anybody's going to know how many rooster crows it was, it's going to be Peter. And the account that comes to us, it's very clear. It was two rooster crows. What other bits of information are included here that Peter knows firsthand? And consider this. Why in the world would Peter want all of these things to be said so clearly about him? Here's what's interesting. When you read the scripture, you see Peter wants to be the hero. He wants to be the one saving other people. He wants to be the one fighting the bad guys. He draws his sword and lops off the ear of a Roman soldier. But what's interesting is here in this account, it came through Mark by way of Peter. And now, what do we know? Because it's included in this text, we can know that Peter is okay. At the writing of this scripture, it's okay. I'm not the hero anymore. And I know that now. I know that now. Peter came to the place of confession instead of denial. His confidence shifted from himself to Jesus. And instead of... Peter needing to be his own hero at the end of his life, we see that he came to the place where Jesus was, in fact, his hero. He didn't see it in the moment. But here's what's really beautiful. Jesus had shared the Last Supper with his disciples. It had been prepared. Remember, he had done a lot of the preparation. Spiritually speaking, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the final and the true Passover lamb. And he invited all these deserters to come to his table, knowing full well that they would desert him. And even in this text, as I mentioned a moment ago, Peter, or I'm sorry, Jesus is making plans to reunite, rendezvous with this deserting rabble in Galilee after he is resurrected. Why? Why, why does Jesus do this? 
Why does Peter make it so clear that he's not the hero? Because he sees that Jesus is the hero. And because Jesus is the hero, we can step into the light. We can truly walk in community. What's more than that? We can actually see, receive correction, one from the other, encouragement. Why? Because we want to look like the hero. We want to look like Jesus. We want to look more and more like the thing that he already says we are. And so we grow together in humility, allowing each other to speak into our lives, being brave enough to speak into others' lives. Let me say this. If you hear nothing else this morning, if you hear nothing else, aside from the word of God, if you hear nothing from me, hear this and write it down. Jesus invites us to his table, not because we are worthy, but because he has chosen to make us worthy. Jesus invites us to his table, not because we are worthy, not because we won't desert him, not because we won't lie about him, not because we won't turn our back on him and neglect him. He invites us to the table because he has chosen to make us worthy. It's no righteousness that you've done. It's his mercy that saves us. With that thought in mind, I want to ask you, is Jesus your hero? Is he truly your hero? In an age of superheroes everywhere you look, it sprung from the paper comics to the, the big screen and everywhere. Jesus is greater than all of those. They're but a picture and a weak one at that. Is Jesus your hero? Hagerstown Church. One of the ways that we together declare that Jesus is our hero, if I can say that, is by observing the Lord's Supper together. It's by coming to the Lord's table. As we take from the Lord's table, we, we remember together that our Lord Jesus, that he introduced this meal on the night that he was betrayed by his closest friends and followers. And we take this meal for one of many reasons. And I want to highlight this one. That his presence is with us who are gathered here regardless of our intrinsic worth. We don't come to this table. Remember, we don't come to this table because we in, our, in and of ourselves have become worthy. We come and receive from this table because he has made us worthy. In an effort to prepare you and to help you, you be prepared to receive from the table, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 23 to 29. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us, church, he gives us instructions as how we're to relate to this ordinance. And so let's do that now. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This consecrated time at the Lord's table, it's for believers. 
for believers who have rested all of their hope on Jesus, particularly in consideration of his death, his resurrection, his new life that he promises us. Christians believe that Jesus truly lived, he truly died, he rose from the dead, he truly secured our salvation. We believe that he died for our sins. We believe that he was raised again, securing justification. We believe that he'll return again in glory as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And if you don't yet believe this, I want to ask you to, to abstain from sharing of the bread and the cup this morning. Abstain until you actually come to faith in Jesus. And so that you can really partake of that supper, this supper, together in a worthy manner, being in Christ. For those of you who are visiting with us today, I... If you're a member of good standing of a like-minded gospel preaching church, we invite you to join in the Lord's Supper. We'd be overjoyed to have you do that. Even if your church doesn't practice formal church membership, but if you're a baptized Christian committed to your gospel preaching church, then we welcome you to partake. Again, if you're not a believer, if you're not walking with the Lord, again, I would ask you, according to the scriptures here, that you would abstain. And Christian, if you find that your heart is not right this morning, I want to ask you to please wait and not take of the Lord's Supper until you can partake of it freely. And so what are you to do with this time? Well, I want to invite you to spend some time in preparation examining yourself. I want to invite you to step into an honest conversation with God right now even about your own sin, about other sins against you and your sin against God and others. I want to invite you to spend some time really asking God to search your heart. And as he reveals sin to you, to repent. I want to invite you to even consider standing up here in just a moment. If there's a brother or sister that you have something against, that maybe you've even sinned against, would you go to them now? Would you ask them for forgiveness? Would you offer forgiveness? Even that sends shudders down my spine. But you know what? None of us here are the hero. We come to this table because of Jesus being the hero. We receive from him. So there's no sense in trying to save face. We're all the damsel in distress. And each of us are in league. Or at least at one point in time, we're in league with the enemy. And so examine yourself. Ask the Lord to reveal sin. Repent. Seek forgiveness and restoration here, even this morning in this room. But also remember this as you prepare. That we receive freely from this table. Freely. We do not earn it. There's nothing that you can do in the next four or five minutes that would make you worthy to come to this table. It's a grace that God gives us freely. So as a way of preparing for your, uh, your partaking in the Lord's Supper, realize this, that what you're about to receive symbolizes grace that you cannot earn, that you have received by God's mercy. So take that time, search your heart, repent of sin, ask others for forgiveness, and above all, consider the kindness of Jesus to invite unworthy people to his table. As the music plays, I want to invite you to pray.